This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we are talking about a quality often used to describe us, Paul. Lost, confused, desperate. All good guesses, but nope. We're talking about being smooth. Nobody says that about us, Rick. You're right. I'm just a little lost and desperate. And I'm Rick Cushman. And you're little. I'm Paul <laughs> Wagner. <laughs> this is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're talking about why allegedly sophisticated wine pros don't get the concept of wine being smooth. We have questions about why critics don't review supermarket wines and about ordering wine on a date. And we have another example of why younger adults don't trust older wine writers who are condescending simply by a reflex. Plus, we'll make fun of wine snobs, which is our free reflex. Stay with us. You're listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're starting right off making fun of wine snobs. Oh boy, my favorite. I know. Actually, this is one from one of our listeners. Mm -hmm. our, uh, our listener in, this is Kevin in Merrick on Long Island, and he emailed the link from a major newspaper and said, in the words of John McEnroe, they cannot be serious. <laughs> Let me read you the start. Yeah. This is, uh, this is, this this is, is impossibly stuff. funny stuff. Uh, this is a writer. What's the most common word on files used and misused to describe a wine? Uh, I'm, I'm adding a little bit of snobbiness into my tone. Yes, you are, rather effectively, mm -hmm. I might add. The answer may surprise you. According to several retailers, it's smooth. Person whose name is removed so we don't get sued. From wine director of store name removed, so above reason. <laughs> in, New <laughs> in New Jersey told me, it's the one million percent single most misused term of all time. I'm sorry, one million percent? Yes. Which this is Somebody certainly this didn't is a, go to third grade. This is a wine right. This, I was gonna say this is a wine director who does not understand percentages. Okay. But good. Um, yeah. perhaps that's because smooth this is a writer again. Perhaps that's because smoothness is wine is almost impossible to define. Really? Yeah, because I think you could ask about a hundred consumers and you could pour them three wines and say which one is smooth, and I bet they'd all agree on which one was smooth. Yeah, right, exactly Because right. it would be the one... That was smooth. That was smooth. Yes. it's Smooth is not hard. It's smooth. <laughs> I hate onophile, too. I hate when a writer does that. Well, yeah. that's to show you that they, they are very clever. They know what enophile means. Enophile, yeah. And... Mm -hmm. and, and Everyone else would just say a wine lover or someone who likes wine, but no, you've got to use the Greek word for yes, it. Yes, right. Um, so we're back to the writer. The writer quotes another big-name person from a big-name place who, quote, no one really knows what it means. Okay. Really? You know what it means. I know what it means. I know what it smooth. means. I'll bet if we ask Matt, he would know what I'm it means. I'm sure he does. Matt's kind of smooth. So, so back to the writer. Many smooth wine seekers are actually looking for wines that are sweet, said Mr. First Guy. Uh, others want something with little or no tannins or acidity, according to a third guy. His name's still removed. He's in New York, which in most cases translates as bland, according to Mr. Third Guy. And if you ask consumers, you would say, would you like a smooth wine? And does smooth mean bland? And the answer would be, yes, I want a smooth wine. And no, I don't want it to be bland. And does smooth mean sweet? No, sweet no, means sweet. Sweet means sweet. And smooth, smooth means, means smooth. smooth. Yes. It's interesting that you will find many high-end journalists using the term seamless. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of smooth, but they won't use smooth because... Yeah. It's not as sexy as seamless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, okay. it goes on just because it's funny. Yeah. Uh, um, a fourth guy whose name has been removed, so he won't sue us, in Manhattan said he has had customers scrunch up their faces as they described the attributes of a wine they don't want, suggesting in a 
suggesting in a physical fashion just how painful it is. This is really bad writing, too, by the way. It is, um, but at the same time, they're screwing up their faces because they are describing a wine that is not... Smooth. Thank you. <laughs> they're almost always talking about a reds, he added, something other retailers found to be true as well. This is like first grade stuff. You know? It is. I mean, who doesn't know this? It is exactly first grade stuff. Yeah, and, yes. and, and let's tell all the customers how stupid they are for not knowing... Yes. Whereas, in fact, the people who are completely missing the boat are the guys quoted in the article. No kidding. It's but it's like so you if you yeah right you if you scrunch <laughs> up your face because you don't want a wine that you don't like and then, if you scrunch up your face because you don't want a wine that isn't smooth I'm going to tell you why liking smooth is wrong and it really means sweet and I'm going to sell you something that you're not going to like and that's going to show you how much more of a smart person I am than you are. Oh, it goes on. Uh, <laughs> okay, come on, give the, me more. The, the word is not, this is a writer again, the word is not only hard to define, but seems to rarely appear anywhere in the store displays. I toured a number of wine shops recently, toured, uh, recently looking for smooth on the sales placards and critics' reviews attached to the shelves and was hard-pressed to find the actual word. Right. Well, yeah, they hate it. So every consumer in America is saying what they want is wines that are smooth, and the wineries are all saying the one thing we will never say about our wine is that it's smooth because... Because, you know... I don't know. Yeah, do you yeah. have an answer to that question? I don't imagine why a winery wouldn't say it's smooth. I do remember that when E&J Gallo first released their brandy, they had two words on the neck label that market research had shown them were the two things people who were buying brandy in that price category, two things people wanted more than anything oh, else. Oh, oh, I know what one of them is. What is it? I bet it's smooth. Well, you're very close. Mellowed uh, and aged. Sure, And sure. both of them meant? Smooth. Smooth. Yeah, yeah. We're yeah. kind of mellowed, and we certainly yeah. are aged. <laughs> <laughs> Some of us more than yes. others. So here's here's the writer. This is a big time writer too. I put the question to a winemaker in California whose name is removed, so we won't get sued. Uh, whose acclaimed reds and whites have been called smooth by by a few of the retailers I know. The voluble Mister Winemaker. The voluble. He's voluble. The word means talkative. Why don't you just quote him? Well, because because what the interviewer really means is I tried to get a question in edgewise and he wouldn't let me yes. once I got turned well, on the tap. But I love I love this sentence, which just is idiotic. The voluble Mr. Winemaker seemed to relish the inquiry, <laughs> which is like I've asked him a good question. Look how smart I am. <laughs> this is the quote okay. from the, the Mr. Voluble Winemaker. Now, the more obvious references to smooth wines are wines with residual sugar. He said. When I hear smooth wine, that's what comes to mind. It can be a literal sugar coating. Now, it's interesting that this is a guy who makes wine and whose wines have been called smooth, and he's saying that smooth means sugar coating. There, there was another part of this story that I really liked because it says, in the rare case where a customer uses smooth to describe an ideal white, it is usually a fancy way of saying creamy or buttery. No, actually, buttery means buttery. It's actually not a fancy way. It's, it's a simple way. Yes. Creamy and buttery are more fancy, are harder to understand. Well, well, smooth the, is smooth. Yeah, and when they say smooth, they don't mean buttery. They mean smooth. They mean when smooth. they say buttery, they mean buttery. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and But I love, this is the writer. Of course, the sugarcoating part, of course, this is how Mr. Winemaker achieves what some might call the smoothness. In his, what his some wines. might call the smoothness in his, in in his, his wine. Instead, he employs several sophisticated winemaking techniques to produce rich, richer, creamier, more viscous wines. 
That would be smooth wines. That would be smooth wines. Yeah. But in his case, because he has, has employed more sophisticated wine-making techniques, he is allowed to say that they are richer, creamier, and more viscous. Yes. Because w- how many customers have you had walk into a wine shop and say, I'd I would like prefer a, viscous, a wine please. that would be a little more viscous? Yes. I want a medium plus viscous, please. <laughs> viscosity. Yes. Could you tell me the viscosity of this wine? And then there is this. Uh, this is back to the writer. The second guy jokingly suggested yeah, – a writer should never have to say jokingly. If the writer can't write it well enough so that to, you get so that, that the writer – So that you understand is, that it's funny. Yeah. yeah. The second guy jokingly suggested that customers seeking smoothness were actually looking for a wine that was, quote, so smooth they didn't know what they were drinking, unquote, as if a kind of vinous obliviousness was the goal. Yeah. I'll bet that's exactly what customers would say. Yeah. I want something that's so smooth that I don't know what I'm drinking. The, or instead, I could drink something that has some rough edges on it that are unpleasant, which is what you want to sell me, and I don't like wines like that. Don't you just want to hang out with these people? Uh, well, I like it's, Venice obliviousness. Yeah. It's, I bet all of them wear ascots. They're just, <laughs> I mean, dear Lord. Yeah. And, well, the ones that don't have the little, have the little, uh, the little patch there underneath the chin, you know. Oh, I just, I don't like hipsters. any of these people. I don't, I'm, I'm not even going to talk about them anymore. Oh, come on now. This is fun. Well, we make fun of them because they're not smooth, but they, we are. They are not smooth. We are too that smooth, That is exactly guys. the point. Well, at least compared to them, we're smooth. And we will uh, use our smoothness smooth-osity. to answer a few questions in just a minute. Our okay. mo- smoothosity. This is Bottle Talk <laughs> with Rick and Paul. Stay with us. Listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we're using our smoothosity to uh, take some questions from listeners. Excellent. If you'd like to ask us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, where all is smooth. <laughs> all one word, Rick and Paul Wine. And don't forget, you can find us on iTunes. And uh, if you're new to us, you might want to know what qualifies us to be answering questions and making fun of snooty wine shop owners. Well, we're smooth. We are smooth and delicious. <laughs> yeah, don't you forget that. Yeah. Paul's a respected industry pro besides all that. He answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches at the Colonial Institute of America at Napa Valley College around the world. And Rick, the wine commentator on Capital Public Radio in Sacramento and best-selling author about wine, as well as a longtime journalist and consultant to restaurants and wineries, and you suggest to them that they might want to make smoother wines. When, when I talk to the restaurant folks, I say, you know, if somebody says, what's this wine taste like? I say, tell them it's smooth. Tell them it's smooth. And, or mellow and aged. Mellowed uh, and yeah, aged. Yeah, I'll have to remember that that's one. That's a good one. Yeah, that's yep. right. All right. Our first question comes from Robert Goodman in Riverside. Hmm. Says, I, I like I would go, Robert, go, although I think he's overthinking it. I have a first dinner date with a very cool woman I got introduced to. I mm-hmm. may be over my head with her because she's pretty impressive. She also likes wine a lot. All I know is it comes in bottles. <laughs> so how do I handle <laughs> the good. ordering wine part of dinner without being so much of a dork? She'll give up on me before, even before the salad. Rick, I think you're ideally suited to answer this question because, because this because, describes your life. Well, as, and I certainly married a woman who's far more impressive than me. I did as well. Yeah. Yep. I did uh, as well. Well, um, in my case, it was easy. Now I got sparkling, but in because my wife loves sparkling, and that's always a good place to go. But it is a right. really simple is is say you know what I know that you love wine. Exactly. Here's the wine list. Exactly. Choose what you would like and tell me why, because I'm just learning. Well, not only that, what a great way to start a relationship, but to establish that not only are you 
um, interested in hearing what she has to say, but there are areas of expertise where you're going to defer to her. And it's a great way to say, listen, we're in this for the long haul. I want to hear what you have to say. What would you recommend? I'm not as knowledgeable as you about wine, so why don't you pick something and tell me about it? I'd love to learn from your lips. Oh, yes, that's what you say you like that? on the first date. Yeah, that'll get you thrown right out. Yeah, <laughs> Paul, <laughs> come on. little subtlety here, my friend. <laughs> Just a little subtlety. <laughs> The uh, yeah, and you also you can also immediately establish that you're not one of those tools who don't, don't understand what smooth is. Right. Well, and the other thing is you don't. What the the one thing you don't want to do is pretend that you know something. Right. Right. Because right, right, you right. will look like an idiot. Right. Even if she doesn't know any more about wine than you do, that awkwardness is impossible to hide. Yeah. You know, Robert, we get a question of this sort every now and then, and God knows why people ask us for dating advice, but um, <laughs> but. The answer is sort of always the same, which is that that you don't have to worry about it. You know, if it's right. you are not going to impress, you're not going to impress anybody that you like by right. trying to be impressive about wine. That's right. But by admitting that you don't like it, you know, you don't know much about it, that's totally cool. But Opens the door. Yeah. yeah. Opens and the frankly, door. if with a little luck, she's going to introduce you to some good wine as well as hang around and... Yeah, all things are going well. Or you could suggest to her, would you like to start with a glass, a wine by the glass? Is there something you particularly like to drink? And if she rattles something off, you say, that sounds good. You could order the same. You're already on the same page. Lots of good solutions here. Yeah, and, and when in doubt, you know, say, you know, I do like bubblies. <laughs> that's just me. Uh, this next one comes from Heidi in Oakland. It's the same kind of a, a question. Okay. I'm kind of a junior manager. I think Heidi probably works for a good company. I'm kind of the junior manager at my company, and my boss sometimes takes me to business centers to learn our clients. He tries to be nice, and he lets me order the wines. I know pretty much nothing about wine and just look for something, anything I recognize. Any tips so I don't look too bad next time? Okay, so why is the boss doing this? I, it, I have my suspicions. Well, yeah, but you are a suspicious guy. See, I am. I am ascribing niceness to the boss. Okay. I think that he's trying—he wants her to learn the, the clients, and he's trying to make her look you know, like she's substantive because she can even order the wine. And I think he's doing it because— Think he's establishing dominance? No, I think he's doing it because I don't think he has a clue. And I think she's bailing him out. Ooh. And she's worried about looking bad. And if he, she ever turned around and said, oh, no, Larry, you do it this time, he'd immediately have to go to the restroom. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, that could be a chance. Well, Heidi, actually, in this case, though, there is a bit of simple advice that will make you look good. This is advice that I give, you know, among the many— I do many things in the wine world because I really can't hold a job. But one of the things that I do now and then is I actually do some executive training about business with wine. Right. Um, and one of the things I always say that when you're in that situation, whether you know a lot about wine or not, first thing to do is you can ask the table, does anybody have anything they'd like? Right. You ask if anybody has favorites. Yes. And then the next thing you do is you call over the sommelier. Yes. And you say, yes. this gentleman loves Cabernet, uh, and this gentleman loves— And this loves... gentleman likes bubbly, right. and this lady over here Can likes Can you give us out? Because now what Chardonnay. you've done is a couple of things. You've taken control without having to do, but That's you've right. also shown that, you're ma- that you can make good decisions. It's not about you knowing wine. When you're doing business, there's you know there's that— Wall Street Journal had a great line, something about like business, is, uh, business dinner— 
is a battlefield, and it starts with the wine. Uh-huh, but uh-huh. it's not about knowing wine. It's really about how you conduct yourself. Right. And so right. this is a, this is a, right. this is much different than than Roberts. It, it's not that you have to demonstrate any knowledge, but in this case, they are looking for you to show something, well, and the show something is just being opening your ears. Let's go back to your longtime suggestion of people taking a photograph of the wine they like. Let's say that Heidi goes into the restaurant and she's just she just remembers the names of a couple of wines she likes. Easy enough to do. The wine list arrives. The boss hands it to Heidi and says, here, I don't know what I'm doing. You order it because I don't want to look stupid. And Heidi opens the wine list and asks to speak to the sommelier. And when the sommelier comes over, Heidi simply says, you know, my house favorite is this wine or that wine. What do you have on the list that might be similar to Mm. that? And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden she's established she's got a house wine, one that she likes. And now the sommelier's job is to make her happy. But by having that conversation, she looks like she's a pro in front of all the people, and she looks like she's not afraid to talk to the sommelier. Well, and that's, that's, that's huge. That's the ultimate yeah. display of confidence is when you're perfectly happy to join in a conversation with the sommelier. Yes. And then the sommelier Absolutely. will say, that's this wine is blah, 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 and the other wine is blah, 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 blah. And that's where Heidi can say, do you have any that are smooth? <laughs> There's also one other trick, and this is also something that I tell them, because, you know, once again, business dinners are entities of themselves. They and are. It does depend. One thing you can also do is, if you know where you're going to dinner, yep. call ahead. Yes. And yep. talk and say, I'd like to talk to somebody about this. And, and I still think, I still think that you always call over the sommelier and have a, a nice discussion right. with them, you know, because it does show command, but but you will then know a few things because you yep. won't really know, even by calling, hey, you're still not going to know what they're going to like, what they're no. going to order, they, that sort they, of thing. They might actually have, some of the restaurants actually have their wine list on the on their on, website. Online, so yeah, but it doesn't hurt to it. talk to them anyway. And yep. and yep. and uh, I I I actually I did a training for this one company and then did it again a year later and and the guy was in the training and what he said is what happened was that he talked this is a great he, it's a great tip from him. Yeah. So he called the Sam ahead of time and they talked a little about it and he, yeah. he got a sense and then he said yeah wait till you see what they're going to order and then here are some directions and you can even ask me these questions. Oh nice. So, so, oh that's so a, that's the a Sam gave him all that's the right great. really good questions that's to a ask. Rest- you go back to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I had a funny experience. I was having dinner a while back, and there were two master sommeliers, a wine educator, and a master of wine all at the table. Sounds like a bar joke. It was. It was. I mean- Bartender said, why the long face? Talk about (laughs) the horse. And so the question is, wine list starts going around the table. Somebody's got to order wine for all these people. (laughs) Right. What the heck do you order? So finally, one of the master sommeliers orders a bottle of wine. And he puts the wine list in the middle of the table. The waiter goes over. The sommelier goes over, brings the wine. And I turned to the guy and I said, so why would you order that? What, what was it about that wine? He said, I wanted to drink that wine. <laughs> the rest of you guys are on your own. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. He's got well, a table full of wine experts. He orders one bottle. It's what he wants to drink. We're done here. Well, it's funny, but that's actually kind of the that it's why I like you know now and then, when you, especially when you're traveling like the media groups or you know right. so, especially if it's media in particular, but if it's a mix of, of media and wine yeah. pros and yeah. stuff, is that everybody just gets wine they like. That's right. And it's it's that's way right. more fun because it is way more it's just, fun. You, nobody's trying to impress anybody. No, it's you're just, just drinking it. I, for... I like this sparkling. Oh, I want that. And anyway, that's, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Heidi, those are really good questions, but um, but that's the thing, and really comes down to is engaging the song, make that song. Okay. Give him, song, give him just a tiny little bit of help, mm-hmm. and you'll look smart, and then you can just nod and smile a lot, and he'll make you feel smart. Yep, yep. 
Um, yeah, and look confident. That's never That's it. And not, not like I say, not knowledgeable, just confident. Yep. Okay, this is from Trisha R. in Napa. In Napa. In Napa. My yeah. hometown. Uh, that's right. Well, we are on the air in Napa. We just recently moved here. So hello, Napa, by the way, since we're on your air. We, we just <laughs> recently moved here from Southern California. We, I think we, we've gotten a question like this before. Uh, uh, my husband's a big... No, it's a different one. We've, we've got some people that have come from Southern California. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So my husband's a big, happy-go-lucky guy, and every time we go wine tasting, he joins a wine club. Great. He says, I'm thinking we're living in Napa now. We don't need wine clubs. Am I right, and what can I tell him? Okay, well, first of all, Trisha, you're right. You don't need wine clubs. But there's a part of a wine club that you may not recognize, and your husband might, and it's particularly helpful now that you live in Napa. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. wine clubs, on the one hand, are ways for you to buy wines, sometimes at a discount, sometimes to get wines you can't get other ways from regular wineries. But the other part of a wine club is where it really pays off if you're in Napa, which is if you have guests from out of town and you take them to a winery where you're a member of the wine club, you get special treatment and you look like a rock star in front of your friends. There's that. You are yeah. locals. And a lot of these wineries have events at the winery where you either get a discount or some kind of free entrance to the event because it's for wine club members only. If you're in Southern California, you almost don't pay attention to these because you're too far away to attend. Right. But in Napa, you can probably go to a wine club event once a week at these various wineries. So I would say don't join wine clubs now that you live in Napa because you want to get wine, good wines at a good price because you can get good wines at a good price anywhere you want in Napa. But if you like the fringe benefits of a wine club, going to the events, being able to walk into the private tasting room or a discount on tasting fees for your guests and all of that, absolutely sign them up. Yep. I, I, I'm not even going to add to that because I happen to agree for once. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Lord be praised. Yeah, there you go. All right. That's it for questions. We will have plenty more later on in the show. But coming right up is some really horrible wine writing. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It's time for some really horrible wine writing. If you haven't already heard enough at the top of the show, <laughs> so we're going to we're going to horrible descriptions now. Uh, smooth is not going to be one of them. Smooth is not going to be one. Uh, of so, them. So, Paul, you have this really weird one. I've got one that starts with S. Um, and it's the hottest thing right now. If you visit any European wine region, they will all tell you their wines have enormous sapidity. Now, Rick, I want to Ooh. clarify, that's not stupidity. That's a word you may have heard no, before. No, I've been, I've been accused of having enormous amounts of that, yeah. yeah. This is sapidity, S-A-P-I-D-I-T-Y. And what they mean in some ways is a kind of savory, delicious, even a little bit of saltiness. Um, but what they really mean is delicious and flavorful, and they call that sapidity. And the problem is Nobody knows what it means. Well, you know, I, I do know that word because I do write on occasion, and it means having flavor fundamentally. So yes. they're basically saying that wine's flavor is that it has flavor. It has flavor. Yeah, good yes. for them. Well, it's a good positive statement. Well, it could be worse. It could least, be no, no, non-sapidity. It could be smooth sapidity. Yes, there you go. All right. Uh, here and is, what do you have? You've got a longer one, right? Mine is on the, well, this is, uh, this is another example of bad writing. On the nose, the attack is black cherry, black currant, black plum, black berry, and other red fruit. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. On the palate, the wine opens to dark chocolate, coffee, mocha, and luscious wood smoke as it moves through the mid-palate. 
finish turns up sharply with ripe tannins. The wine will be good through 2031. 2031. 2031. Just like okay, this is not I, 2030. You know, this is a, this is a 13, a 2013. So not 2030. It's going to be the the person picked. So absolutely no rounding off here. No rounding absolutely. off. Absolutely, it's going to be number good through 2031, and at 2031, it is going to fall off the table. I think that the I think they just picked the number because it, nobody would remember it. Felt good. Yes. What I like yeah. is black cherry, black currant, black plum, blackberry, and other red fruit. I know. I like. Are we playing checkers here? Yeah. Now, on the nose, the attack. Actually, attack. It's. It, the wine, the technical description of a wine word for attack is actually flavor. So right, on the not, nose, you can't have yeah, the attack. Yeah. Although if you do get an attack on your nose, you often get a nosebleed. And then true. you have not black fruit, but red. Well, the other part I like is chocolate and coffee and mocha. But actually, if you mix chocolate and coffee, you get mocha. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, right? So, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, yeah. No, that was a good yeah. one. Yeah, and just... luscious wood smoke. Because luscious <laughs> smoke. Mm, yeah. Oh, and I love luscious yep. smoke. But it's, that's only as it moves through the mid palate. Mid palate, because in the far palate, it's, it yes, turns up sharply. Yeah, it turns up sharply. Oh God! All right. Um, well, Lordy, Lordy. Um, can I guess? Uh, very quickly. Uh, Cabernet. Nope. Nope. Zinfandel. Zinfandel. Yeah. yeah well, so you got a Zin that's going to be good for all my, that time. Yeah, that yeah. was my second guess too. So, okay. All right. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Uh, we will be back with some history in just a moment. Stay with us. Listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Those noble tunes mean it is time once again to go back in time. Back, back, back. Uh, our historic history moment of the week, our Paul. historic history moment. What do you have for us? Well, you know, um, something that wasn't particularly smooth was in the Victorian age, um, people used to think that man was in charge of the world, and they carried plants and animals all over the world to transplant them into different places. And it's why we have vast forests of eucalyptus trees in California, and they put rabbits in Australia and all sorts of things like this. One of the things they did was they moved grapevines everywhere around the world so that you could try planting different grapes in different places. And unfortunately, what they found was that phylloxera, which is a little, a, tiny louse. a little tiny root louse that kills just about any grapevine, any of the European grapevines it comes in contact with, it started getting transplanted all over the world because they were moving grapevines around. And, and, it, and it was also, at the time, it was coming from the great grapes of, of France and Europe, and, and it, they wanted to spread it, their wine. It basically killed all the vineyards throughout the world. Um, and is, so between are... 1860, 65, and 1900, just about every fine wine region in the world got its vineyards completely They're wiped falling out. falling apart. It was called the death of wine by one Paris yeah. newspaper. And uh, interestingly, it, it really affected the world of wine. For example, much of Rioja in northern Spain was settled by French farmers who moved south from Bordeaux, and they brought their grapevines with them so that they could plant them in Rioja. And, of course, on the roots of those grapevines was more phylloxera, so they actually introduced it, and that's how it spread throughout the world. 
And but it, wine did not die. Remember, phylloxera is a Native American pest louse. It did not exist in Europe until these vines started going from... It was going back and forth. Back and forth, yeah. and it started getting spread in Europe. What Eventually, some, some very smart scientists discovered, one in Texas and one in Missouri, was that, you know, it's funny. We have grapevines in America that are native here, and they don't die. And it turns out, of course, they have an inherent resistance to phylloxera. And so these very smart scientists figured out you plant the rootstock with a Native American vine that is resistant to the Native American pest. And then on top of that, you graft on the Cabernet or the Chardonnay or the Merlot you want to grow. And that's pretty much how all the grapevines in the world are now planted. Yeah, and it was happening in America, too. In Absolutely. In it was happening. Yeah, so, and that is, you know, it's, and it's a cool thing. And we, we've talked about this sometimes in the past is that um, that wine is a weird, but actually other fruit trees do this as well, where, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's not it's not the root. It's the graft that defines what it is. Right, that's right. But the root, it, because the la- the phylloxera allows is a root pest. Mm-hmm. That's what it was going. So it yep. was. It's kind you see of, the same thing with walnut trees. You have the black walnut base and the English walnut top for the same yeah. thing. Yeah, that's uh, our friend okay. Phylloxera. So what uh, is your uh, what is your story for our boys with well, the trumpets? Well, I'm going back to the 1760s and saying I am calling these snob diaries. Wow, you can you were alive in the 1760s. It's amazing. Right? Well, no, I just You're in my very time, well preserved. My little time machine took me there. I see. Uh, you know, we've talked about uh, how. Uh, all our, our some of our really bad wine snobs uh, have sort of inherited this British view of the world, where there's a class. The upper thing class involved. drinks yes. wine. The lower class drinks beer. Yeah, and it goes back to Britain, and it really goes back around the middle 1700s when they started understanding that they, you know, about aging wine and that you mm. needed property, and you know, so to have wine, you needed a cellar, a cellar, right? Yes. So the better wine was wine that aged, but you needed to have one, the money to buy wine, a lot of it, and yep. put it, and two, some property to put it in a cellar. Right, um, which so, is still true today, Rick. Yeah, well, it's true. They do know this. So, cellar meant status and wealth, and yes. um, and in a very uh, uniquely British way. Uh, it, it, this is very uniquely British because the Brits didn't produce wine. Right. So That's in right. Italy, they drank local Italian wines. In France, yeah. they drank local French wines. They drank the village wines, and so yeah. the, this course sort of um, what you sh- what what you drank was not a thing. Whatever, it, it, it was, was local. whatever grew locally. So yeah, it wasn't right. a status thing. It was a local thing. Right. Uh, but in England, where they didn't make wine, so and they had a lot of money, and they were a big market because it, during the 1700s they were a very wealthy country. And they ruled the seas. And they ruled the seas. Britannia. So in early 1760s, a London publisher uh, was selling a, a record-keeping book. Um, it was uh, cool. well, yeah. It was a they version. They still sell them today. Yeah, but but this was a version of an 18th century version of an app. Oh uh, yeah, but sure. What it was about this book? Not only was it just a book for tracking what you had in a cellar, it also recommended everything that every respectable Londoner would have in their in, cellar. In their cellars. So in, in short, I have a question for you. He told actually, them what to drink. I actually know this because um, I teach classes on this. If you were to pick five or six wines that would be in every English upper-class house in the 17 to 1800s, what would those wines be? Well, it would be a claret. A claret or Bordeaux. Yes. That's right. Uh, That's one of them. A, uh, a Madeira. A? A Madeira. Madeira. Yeah, Maybe probably. Um, a sherry. Yes. Good. Uh, a port. Yes. A burgundy. Uh-huh. Yes. I'm going to go two more. Okay. Maybe three. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, boy, I'm I'm, run, I'm running out of things that I think that they were drinking back then. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm surprised you wouldn't get one of them. Um, oh yes, yeah, champagne, of course, of course, of course. Bubbly. Sure, sure, yes. that was a good hint. Um, yep. See, I'm thinking it's not going to be anything Italian. Um, You're absolutely right. Nothing Italian. Um, was uh, uh, to use a Saturn. 
Well, possibly. Well, that's Burgundy, though. I mean, yeah, it's Bordeaux. Bordeaux. Yeah. Um, the two that would quite probably be on that list would be a Rhone wine, either an Hermitage or a uh, oh, Chateauneuf sure. du Oh, of course, yeah, Southern France. And the other right. one that is is really rarely mentioned in the same kind of category here is Hock. Ah, which is, of course, German, German Riesling. Riesling. Yeah, yeah. But Back when you think about was, that yeah. today and you think about the most popular wines in the world today, Sherry, Port, Madeira, Hock, yeah. most of those are are not on the front front burner when yeah. it comes to selling wine in America yeah, yeah, or anywhere else yeah. in the world. Yeah. Cool. Oh, that's our wine snobs for you. What's in your cellar book? Yeah, My, my cellar is uh, it's all over the map. My, I wish I knew. I wish I had a cellar book, actually. Yeah. I need a... I need a cellar book because um, I can never remember what I've gotten there, and you know it's just, it's so you know every I'm I am like everybody else in the, on who has any kind of wine refrigerator. I've got these three fifty bottle wine refrigerators, and I'm I'm always always opening the door and poking around. Right, oh, where's fondling where oh, yeah, your bottles? Where did I put? Well, no, I'm just looking for stuff. Is what I'm doing. I so, see. Okay. Yeah. All right. yeah. Um, so we've been uh, we've been talking about wine writers uh, making fun of people and bundling uh, uh, millennials and all that sort of stuff, and um, uh, this is another example. Good, uh, another example. Um, this is from a, a writer, allegedly grown up, uh, but once again making the millennials the largest generation in American history as, into one uh, into one person, right? And right. This is actually the the start of the story is a quote. It's so many millennials are interested more in the narrative of the wine rather than the wine, said Nain Removed, head sommelier of restaurant name removed so we won't get sued. A lot of mediocre wine is being sold on the basis of a story. Yep. Mr. Sommelier lamented the fact that few of his generational peers, this is a young guy, took the time to understand why certain wines are greater than others. Well, it's because some are smooth and some are not. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Weinsnob, I'm calling him that, uh, said that his peers need to learn to distinguish the difference between being excited about wine and wine that is genuinely exciting. Why? Right. <laughs> really, if they're excited about it, it's exciting. It's fine. Yes, and if it's interesting. If you asked Mr. Weinsnob what made wine exciting, he would talk about acidity and and all of that crazy stuff that winemakers talk about. And if you asked his customers why they were sapidity. excited about wine, talk about he would talk about sapidity. <laughs> they would talk about personality and authenticity. They would rather buy a wine from a person they liked who seemed like they truly loved what they were doing than buy a wine that has um, certain native yeasts used yeah. or there is a certain biological technique right. that is exclusive to this winery in the southern half of its vineyard. Sorry. Right. Sorry. And it is, uh, it is I mean, first off, it, you want to talk about missing the point. I mean, never mind the fact that if people are excited about a wine because of the story, that's a cool thing. Rick, how often do we talk in this show about people who are in the business of selling wine to the customer and what they do is complain about their customers? Well, that was the second biggest point. That's what I was getting. I was <laughs> that's go, the main that's where point. I was going next was, well, you want to talk about missing the point, right? Never mind that it's that why these people like it. If your job is to if they if they like it, sell them wine. And exactly right, exactly <laughs> you know? right. I and mean, no, they don't. They don't look at wine the same way I do. So they're wrong. Rather than saying, "What is it they say about customer service?" Something about the customer is always the customer is always smooth. Smooth. 
Yeah, it's it's something like that. Because Mr. Wine Snob is not. Mr. Wine Snob is definitely not smooth. This is from a very long story about uh, the millennial. Right. Actually, inside the story, there was some there were some survey numbers, and they were they seemed to be pretty good. But nonetheless, those numbers were a little confusing because the differences between millennials and boomers are not that big. It's a question of five or ten, maybe fifteen percent. It's not thirty percent to seventy percent. Right. Well, so in fact, millennials are pretty similar to boomers in almost every way. Yes. Well, here was the. For me, here was the revelation of that. Those numbers was it turns yes. out millennials are people. No, no, it's not. true. Yeah, no, no, they were actually they're actual <laughs> actual human beings. Apparently, they have emotions and everything. God, you know, who would have figured? I know because I just thought they were this one caricature. But <laughs> that's right. You know, it, that's right. Uh, oh dear lord. Well, and right. the one thing I like is in the other part of that story is if this is the same story I saw, the journalist invited three unrelated, four unrelated millennials to her home to try four wines that she had picked out. And then she drew conclusions for the whole generation based on the reactions of four people to four wines she picked out. And I couldn't help thinking two things. Number one, statistically, that's the most idiotically irrelevant analysis I've ever seen. In so many directions. And then the second one is if she had invited four consumers who were let's say, our age, baby boomers, and serve them the four wines, I am absolutely convinced they'd have had exactly the same reaction. Yeah, and, and four wines and what, you know that she picked out. And, and she picked them out, yeah. and one of the characteristics that all of those wines lacked. They weren't smooth? They were not smooth. Nope. They were not smooth. Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, we, 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 we ache for our industry, don't we, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> of course, lots of people ache for us on general principle. <laughs> Some people's ears ache. I can't say that I blame them. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and uh, achingly or not, we are going back to our mailbag. And one more time, if you'd like to ask us a question, we will give you credit. Or if it aches when you do, when that happens, we won't. <laughs> Just go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. Um, this is from Susan Nguyen in Burlingame. And this is a kind of, this is exactly on the point of what we were just talking about in terms of sort of understanding your buyer or your reader, right? Susan says, how come no one ever reviews any of the wines I see in the supermarket? There's a billion of them in there. Don't wine critics think we need help? I mean, movie critics write about the Transformer movies. Why can't wine critics write about Chardonnay? That is, I, I'm sorry, I just think put that, that should be. Put that on a t-shirt, put right? Put that on a t-shirt, yep. mail it to every wine writer in America. Right. Right. Absolutely right. Susan, the answer is really complicated, but first off, you are so right. So it's actually not—I'm going to say the answer isn't quite that complicated. Well, it's complicated because they all have—it's uh, it, it, psychological is what it is. But Number one, mm. a lot of the—there um, are very few commercially unacceptable wines in America today. In particular, this is really interesting. If you go to other countries and you taste— a broad spectrum of wines, you'll discover wines that, frankly, are commercially unacceptable, should not be released. Very few wines like that in the United States. Well, not, not unless they're not smooth. Unless they're not smooth. Or if they so, are smooth, I so can't So part of the problem is wine writers don't get excited about... Now, if we're using the 100-point scale, just as an example, 80 to 90 is from B- minus to B+. Plus. If I'm buying for $10 a bottle or $12 a bottle, a wine that gets between 80 and 90 points, I'm thinking I'm in the ballpark. This is a good value. It's a pretty good thing. I'm getting a B wine for not for less than 15 bucks. You know what? If those guys were to taste most of those wines, most of those wines would get between 80 and 90 points. Sure. So now they got nothing to talk about. Sure. Except they could talk about black cherries, blackberries, black plums, black something and other red fruits. But they couldn't actually give you much help in terms of they're all pretty good wines. Yeah. And the one characteristic they will all have in common because they're really popular. Uh, I know. I know. They're this, smooth. You got it. 
because of the work that I do around the wine world, I do um, taste and recommend and and occasionally write about some of those wines. And there is a difference. There's a difference yes. between uh, the sweeter red blends and, sure. and uh, the the less expensive zins that are more on the rich side and the ones that are more on the you know the chardonnays Lighter that have side, more butter. Right? The ones that are yep. there is a difference, and that's yep. what people want to know. And it is what people want to know, and it's who buys most of the wine, right? Yeah. And so yeah, so so Mr. Snooty Wine Writer person. Uh, listen to Susan because she wants to know what to get in there. And and this is another, it is um, it is a pretty uniquely American problem, although you know this better than I because you travel a lot more than I do. But, you know, there is no country in the world that has these giant walls of confusing wine the way American supermarkets yeah, do. true. We have a and massive so for collection. Us, for, there's so many wines in there, and, and you see people struggle sometimes because there's so many wines in there. Right. And, and, and so right. your job as a critic is to make, their li- make them love wine. Right. Help right. Them well, out. you were a television critic. I'm yeah. assuming you didn't only review The Wire and 24. You also reviewed Three's Company. Uh, these companies before my time. You're, oh, was it? You're okay, aging so me I'm, just well, a tad here. I'm, I'm aging myself. Then. But I would have. Um, yeah, sure. It's I, part I, of the job. Yeah, absolutely. Part and, of the job. And you put it into context and, and all that sort of thing. And yeah. And and uh, her comment about Transformer movies is absolutely spot on. That's true. And if you read the good movie critics, of which there seem to be a lot, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. more than any kind of critic, in that they are written because movies are so aimed at the mass in right. a large way. They they revel in the you unique independent film but they also will revel in the big action thriller sure. that is Star Wars or whatever it sure. is and yeah. they'll review it in the context of Star Wars fans that's right that's right they will say if among the hundred James Bond films that have been made right. this one fits yeah well fair enough why yeah. shouldn't wine writers you know it's interesting my company every once in a while does a survey of food editors around the country and we ask them because we'd love to know what kind of articles would they like to see about wine and you know the two answers we get over and over and over again? Number one is there's a major holiday coming up. What, what do you recommend yeah. with that food? And the second, one is, yeah, the second one is what are some good wines, values, wines that sell right. for under $15 right. at a good value? Basically, right. if I'm picking supermarket wines, which one should I be looking at? Right. And they can't find those stories. Yep. So send them Amazing. away. Send, send them to me. Send them to you. Yeah, You'll yeah. set them straight. Okay. This one comes. This is a good question too. This comes from Jim McDonald in Sacramento, and I have to say, he asked me this question. I know Jim; he's a good guy. Uh-huh. Um, he said, "I'm going. I'm going to big wine tasting in a couple of weeks about with about 200 wineries. Yeah, most of them are pretty big names, but they're from all over. I'm looking to find some wines to buy that I don't know. Um, do you guys have any hints on how to get the most out of something like that? Um, Jim, you need a system." You cannot walk in the door, start at one end, think you're going to come out with the other end with answers. Yeah, oh, God, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need to sit down and say, are you going to taste? Are you looking for specific things? Are you looking for a dry white? Then maybe identify where some white wines that you've always wanted to try are. Break it down into smaller categories and just try to taste five, six, seven wines in that category and then try to kind of make a decision and then go on. Reminds me a little bit. You know, years and years ago, I used to go every year to Vinitaly, the largest wine right. festival it was in the like world. like a billion wines. It's 5,000 wineries, 25,000 wines. That's and I was close standing, to a billion. I was sta- <laughs> close to a billion. I was standing at the airport waiting for a taxi, and the woman in front of me was from Chile. She was a journalist, and we started talking because I speak Spanish, so I was speaking Spanish to her. And I said, so what's your plan for Vinitaly? She says, with great confidence, I'm going to start at one end and work my way all the way through to the other. 
Is and she, I said, she going to be there like four months? I said, you do realize there are 5,000 wineries and 25,000 wines, right? And she looks at me and she says, I need a new plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. So that, Jim needs a plan. Yeah. And I told I, well, I told Jim something similar to that. And right. I said, I said, do two things. Here's, here's two things that, that I would do if it were me in a situation right. like you. Because I know Jim, he likes wine. He knows a little yep. bit about wine, but yep. he's still learning. Yep. Um, but he knows he knows a decent amount. And I said, so pick a varietal that you like. Yep. And but go to some wineries that you don't know because you know the guys that you know. Sure. And it was a you good list, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. so and just drink that, taste that varietal. You know, if it, whether right. it's Pinot or Syrah, yeah. whatever you want. You know, I said, and then go and there was some. There was a whole bunch of California wineries, but there was also some Italian and some Spanish. Yep. I said. Think about something that you've been wanting to, to learn a little to bit about and, right. and, and poke at them for a bit yep. and ask them questions. So good ideas. I have two other tips that I would like to give Jim. One of them is drink lots of water. Oh, yeah. And number two, spit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that I was my joke was spit. That was the first thing I told spit. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, it's tough. And th- it is the thing. You know, even these... The small, I because I, I do a lot of events in town. I go to a lot of the events where there's like the, the, the charitable event. And there's yeah. ten wineries. Pouring. You're not even going to taste all the wines from ten wineries. You know? Right. So it's a, if you have the time, is it's a good thing to do. Is sort of go within the same variety. Just yep. decide which one you like. Yep. Or if you find one winery that you really like their wine, then taste all their wines because sure. you might want to buy some stuff from sure. there. Sure. Or so. stock in the winery. Yeah. 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 Yep. Or, yeah. Or buy stock. That's not a bad approach either. Yeah. <laughs> all right. This one comes from Chris in Reading. He says, "Am I supposed to know? I guess it's a he. I don't know if that's a boy." Or a girl, hmm. uh, but Chris says, "Am I supposed to know what cool climate grapes do?" I've been seeing that on some wine labels lately, and I've been hearing people talk about that. And since I don't know what it means, I just get something else. I think that's a great response, Chris. I think you should just keep doing that because those wineries are pretty silly in the way they're doing that. Yeah. Cool climate grapes. Now, you know right off the bat that let's think about your tomatoes in your backyard. In the cooler, shady spot, they're not going to get as ripe as the ones that are leaning right up against the fence in the sunniest part of the yard. So cool climate grapes are not going to get as ripe probably lower alcohol, probably higher acid. If you like that style of wine, cool climate's a good thing. If you don't like that style of wine, it's a bad thing. In general, cool climate grapes are not smooth. They are not smooth. Yeah, and that that really is the that is kind of the the one simple it, it is sort of a it, you know, once again, because they can't actually tell you what the wines taste like in a way that will be useful. That will for make you. any sense. It's to a you. code word, right? It's it a is code a word. Code word yeah. for lower alcohol and a slight, you know, slightly higher acidity and that sort right. of thing. Um, right. And uh, the, the the wine geeky folk love it because they like those kinds of wines. Nothing wrong with I like those kinds of wines too. I do too. But I also like big and rich wines too on occasion. Yeah. And it just depends. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's kind of what they mean. So they're a little bit maybe a little leaner, a little less rich, maybe a little more acidity, that sort of thing. Yep. Um, yep. And, and just Remember, think they really aren't talking about climate. They're just talking about ripeness. Right, right. They're talking about the ripeness of the grape. That's right. exactly what Probably it is. Probably less ripe. So yes. that's yeah. the kind of wine they're Yes. Um, and uh, we only have this is, a, this is a question we should answer at greater length, um, but we only have another minute or two. Maybe I should just hold this question off and we should answer. I do a food and wine pairing. And I will save okay. this question for another show because it's a really good question. Okay. It's about. Makes me all interested. Yeah, now. it's you got about my oh, it's about oak bombs and and uh, people yeah, calling them no, names. And, no, yeah, no, yeah, it's a good description. And so, yeah. so we only okay. got like three minutes left. So we are going to instead move along. We're going to close our little mailbag. We are going to go to our food and wine pairing. And if you stay with us, we will have something fun for you. Be right back. You 
listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and it is time for a food and wine pairing. This is a good middle of January food and wine pairing. We've had something like this when you got back from uh, Hungary, but this is really more on point. Beef stew. Beef stew. Because we, d- we did we're talk about comfort gula. food yeah, now. We're talking comfort food. And we're talking and something. And I want to talk a little bit about comfort foods, too, because wines with comfort foods need to be comfortable wines, if you ask me. I agree with you. Yeah. And I think that one of the things, um, beef stew, this is something that's been cooking for two days on the stove. It could well be. So it's it's not going to have those bright, lively flavors of a piece of meat right off the grill. It's going to be all of that stuff's going to be mixed together and mushed together. And, and it's kind of that richness. And depending yeah. on where you go, you know, where you go with the spicing, it might wine, be. Yeah, little, but it's, yeah, lots that's of stuff. We're thinking. So yeah. I like a softer, dare I say, smooth red with this. Me too. And I would go with something like a Rioja from Spain with mm. beef stew. Oh, I like what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, they make their wine smooth. No, they actually, the Rioja is, <laughs> there's a, they tend to be, you know, they use a lot of American oak. They love that. They age them. They, there is yep. a, there's a, a softness to them. I actually think a Merlot is a really good wine with oh, this too. Yep. Same thing. You know, yep. it's a li- it's, like, it's you know, the Cabernet without the edges and, and yep. that sort of thing. But, yep. but you know, there's a couple other places I might think of. Your friend Val Policello. Always. Yeah. yeah great yeah, food yeah. wine in general. And you know the other one that we should not avoid um, is particularly for some of these foods, uh, stews that are a little more interesting, is Malbec from Argentina Ooh, for yeah, the same nice reason. Oh, yeah, nice thought. Right. Well, you know, Mal- the, the, the M&M, right? Malbec in meat. Yeah. That's the yeah, kind yeah. of their and so Yeah, it, but a it, lot of times it, it gets paired with hot off the grill, grill. you know, medium rare to rare right. steak. Right, but it's the richness it's of It's the that. soft texture of yeah. the wine that makes it so nice with these stews as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we ought to throw veggie stew into this mix very quickly, too, because we just you only have a minute left. But, but... I, I'm not changing my wine recommendations. Oh, I am because my wife made a veggie stew last night and it included curry. Ah, well, and then from then a, ooh, all of a sudden yeah. we had Gewurztraminer and yeah. boy was it good. Yeah, ooh, I'm hungry. Yeah, we should go eat stew. All right, well we've been stewing long enough, so that is it for another round of bottle talk with Rick, Rick and Paul. Is in fact stewed. I am totally stewed and smooth. <laughs> Our engineer is Matt Pacini. He Thanks, is Matt. also very smooth. Thank you to Capital Public Radio, Capital Public Radio, the smooth folks there who allow us to use their <laughs> studio. If you'd like to ask us a question, you go to rickandpaulwine.com, do it smoothly, and look for us on iTunes. And if you learn anything today, we hope is you probably shouldn't listen to any wine seller who doesn't understand what smooth means. <laughs> I'm Rick Cushman. And I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink with friends. Or with us. Especially with us.